0: K. Takwaye now presents A Reaper at the Gates from the series An Ember in the Ashes by Saba
1: Talk YA.
0: I'm Marissa Snyder.
1: And I'm Katie Bradford.
0: And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week, we finished the third book in the An Ember in the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. We read A Reaper at the Gates.
1: Which is actually, I feel like this title, sorry, this is like not important, but this title <laughs> was not the best to me. I felt like the other two titles, they <laughs> like referenced it at some point in the story. We have an ember and then we have a torch. And then this one, I was kind of like, wait, what? Who
0: was the ember and who was the torch? I don't remember now.
1: Well, I meant, like, embers growing into... To- like, there was, like, kind of a theme with, like, the fire thing. Oh. But I think all three of them, honestly, had been referred to as embers by the augurs.
0: Yes, and then someone was also referred to as a torch against the night. Yeah, I actually,
1: I think... Elias and Leia were embers in the first book, and then I think Helena was referred to as a torch in the second book. Who's the Reaper, then? I know. That's where I was, like, waiting for it to come up at some point. And what, which gates are we talking about?
0: The gates of hell. I think it's the Nightbringer. I feel like the Nightbringer is the Reaper, right? I mean... Is that too obvious? <laughs>
1: kind of. It just bothered me that it wasn't, like, explicit, mm. I guess. And really, when you think about it, the gates of hell or whatever, is that the soul catcher's role? Like, to... <gasps>
0: Maybe Elias is the reaper at the gates. That would make more sense.
1: Possibly. Or was it like Helena guarding the city and like oh. the last gate that, I don't know, or even Cook? I don't know. Like, I just, it wasn't super clear to me. I, I was waiting for it to be like, <laughs> ooh, this is it. But I didn't feel that way.
0: Well, I feel like we have some good possibilities at least.
1: That's true. Okay. I'll, I'll buy into that.
0: Um. Well, okay. Speaking of the Nightbringer, we have an extra perspective in this book that we didn't get in the last two. We have a Nightbringer perspective. What?
1: I actually forgot about that. Was it only at the beginning that we had that? And
0: at the end. I think we just got it at the end. So just two little ones, but that was unexpected.
1: And you know I like complicated villains, as do you, I think. But Mm -hmm. the more we get about his story and the more layered he becomes and almost relatable, the more I like it.
0: (laughs) Totally and I think that like honestly saved this book a little bit for me because you know I don't like demons Mm -hmm. and I feel like this demon this nightbringer is actually really interesting and I'm into his story so he made me like care about the djinn a little bit more.
1: Yeah and I almost don't like I didn't just want Leia to like get the ring and prevent the star from coming back like I'm glad that it's more complicated than that and it's not just like they're defeated or something right I mean we'll see what happens in book four but
0: so how do we want to go about unpacking this book
1: do we want to pick a character at a time and kind of talk through what's going on with them Yeah. big moments
0: yeah let's talk through our four perspectives Nightbringer, Elias, Leia, and Helena let's start with Elias
1: okay now soul catcher so he's like pretty much given up his whole identity at this point (laughs) (laughs) I mean it was a journey to get there but by the end of this book he has bonded with Ma and is kind of being a jerk, <laughs> and, <laughs> okay, it actually bothers me, like, I was liking his storyline, but it, I don't like, like, the mind control thing that seems to be happening, where, like, there's this part of him that he can't, you know, he's like, I want to say yes, but then no comes out of my mouth, or, or whatever, and part of that is, mm. like, is it even his perspective then, or should we just, like, ignore him, and I don't know.
0: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Shadow of the Fox. Yeah. with the enchanted sword that was also possessed by a demon. It kind of reminded me of that. I bought it, though. I mean, I I liked the idea of this moth figure who is, like, the source of all power. And, I mean, it, it all kind of makes sense. Like, as much as I didn't enjoy watching Elias turn into a zombie, essentially, it totally made sense within the world that Saba Tahir had created. Especially mm-hmm. since we see him in the beginning and he's kind of training with Soul Catcher. And mm-hmm. he's really not doing a good job.
1: <laughs> and that's, that's a totally fair point. I'm like totally jumping in the end when I say I don't like it right now. But I do feel like it was a slow and gradual and made sense the way it happened. It wasn't just like one day. I think it would have been worse if when he made the vow, like this just automatically happened. But it was like, a progression, and you saw him kind of constantly battling between wanting to help people, especially the people he knows, and his duty to moving the souls across or whatever, and when he failed at his duty, it actually hurt the people, so finding that balance was not obvious or simple.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's so interesting about his predicament right now, like, Mm -hmm. he needs to move these souls on, so he needs to control his emotions to do that, or, like, the djinn are going to escape and destroy everyone. But he has this really unique conundrum where it's, like, to save the people he cares about, he needs the magic. But he can't care about the people if he wants to use the magic.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) Because
0: he has to, like, stop being human, essentially, is what they tell him. Like, you cannot have these human emotions... In order to do your job, so...
1: You can't love, you can't, yeah. It's,
0: yeah, it's very, it's a very complicated little situation he's in. (laughs) And how frustrating.
1: I have a lot of questions, though, about Moth. Because I can't tell if he's, he, I'm using he, I don't know, if the magic of Moth is more positive or negative or neither, or Mm. how it relates to, like, the Nightbringer piece, if at all. Because, so we did find out that before all of this happened, when the scholars turned on the djinn and captured them like before that the djinn were basically the soul catchers of the world but it was like the whole race or the whole Mm -hmm. all of them and that balance is now missing so we're also kind of told that Elias is going to fail because even if he's completely focused one person especially a human can't handle this whole duty right right and I think this is I think actually what bothers me the most because him and Leia were good at communicating for most of these three books. And he's like bought into this soul catcher role and what he needs to do. And like you said, that trade off and he's made his choice more or less. But he never like told her why. Or I, I just like wish there had been more communicate. They had had that like goodbye talk where he was like, OK, this is the choice I have to make. And this is what I'm going to do. It maybe wouldn't have worked in the story if he had done that. But I think that's actually what I'm frustrated by. OK, I guess he warned her. If I'm not myself, just know that I love you or whatever.
0: Was that when they met in the dream and had some sexy time?
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot about that part, too. <laughs> <laughs> Does she remember that? Does she just think it's a dream?
0: I think she thinks it's a dream, but I don't think it was a dream. I feel like it happened in the waiting place. And I think, yeah, that was like kind of the, the part where he said goodbye to her. Oh, man. And that line where he was like, if I ever seem different to you, or if I ever don't see myself, just remember that I love you. That, like, was so sad. That really, that got me. <laughs> Wait, Wasn't
1: that when he freed her from the gin? Like, when they planted oh, all yeah. that stuff in her mind, mo- or not planted, but, like, revealed this truth about yes. her family? Oh, that was such a hard part in the book. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wanting Cook's backstory and it was way better than I expected and I'm totally switching over to, to Leia for a second now but
0: if we can go to Leia it's fine <laughs> oh my goodness that was and you know what you totally I feel like you called it since book one you were like something's up with Cook I like the Cook something is going on with her and I I never see it coming I never ever see it see the twists coming
1: I knew there was something there I did not know that was what it was to be fair Especially because I thought she was, like, older and stuff. Like, I I, I thought if anything that we'd find out that they were, like, related or somehow, like, much more closely entwined. Like, that she definitely, I thought, knew a lot more about the mother. I did not expect her to be the mother.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that scene that Leia sees with her mother in the prison being tortured by the commandant and sees her kill her husband and her daughter Mm -hmm. to, like... And I don't even know if it was out of, like, a mercy killing or she was afraid that they would reveal too much eventually.
1: I think it was kind of like a joint thing. Like, she, it was the hard decision, but it was the only way to, A, protect Darren and Leia because... The Commandant didn't know that they existed and it was likely that the father or Liz would reveal something. And then B, it wasn't just that she thought they couldn't hold up under torture and she wanted to kill them, but she also didn't want them to be tortured anymore, I think. She didn't want them to have to bear that burden of either revealing it or continuing to be tortured, I think.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think what's also just so sad is how she has like never forgiven herself for that which like granted I don't know how you do forgive yourself for something like that but you know Leia is like has her mom back and she's trying to connect to her and her mom kind of doesn't not that she doesn't want anything to do with her but she feels like she doesn't deserve Leia's love she feels like she doesn't deserve to know what's happening with Darren it's like it's kind of sad because she's uh, like abandoning them all over again because she feels like she doesn't deserve to have them.
1: Well, especially when you think back to book one and how Cook treated her Mm -hmm. when she like actually really could have used a kind word here or there. (laughs) But again, I think it's more than just that one scene. Like that scene was especially hard where she killed her husband and daughter, but she had been tortured horrifically. I mean, we've seen the disfiguration on her face. We've seen how, what's her name? Mm -hmm. Izzy was tortured when she did care about her or whenever she tried to fight back. So I think she just truly was like fully beaten down at one point.
0: Yeah. And she still has like that lasting trauma cuz like even like with the stuttering and Yeah. I just, I feel so, I felt so bad for her, honestly.
1: And I did want them to have more time to make peace. Like, I'm, it felt appropriate the way it ended. So it, ultimately, she sacrifices herself to give Leia a chance to escape and bring Helena with her. And I, I like that at the end of the day, she made a sacrifice for her daughter. I just wish that they had had a couple more moments before that happened to, like, talk and be at peace and...
0: I agree. I wish that they had more time, too. I wish that we had learned more about the magic that Cook had. Because remember that scene where she was, like, climbing?
1: Oh, yeah, the spidery thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and she had, like, this inhuman movement. I was so curious about that, and I I kind of thought we'd learn more before she died.
1: Well, we have other people with weird magic, Helena and Leia included, and then also... Musa or the oh, beekeeper yes. so hopefully we'll get more background about why these people have these abilities or how it's connected the darkness right isn't that what they keep saying mm-hmm. like the darkness is whatever
0: yeah and they have that prophecy too that Shiva gives Soulcatcher gives
1: oh my goodness that there was so much in there I like couldn't even process it
0: <laughs> I know I was trying to too and the one thing I did like was the ghost will fall, her flesh will wither, and Leia was so certain that it was her, that she was the mm-hmm. ghost because she can become invisible, but the ghost mm-hmm. was Cook. She was the ghost. Yep. And then I was trying to figure out, like, who the other people were, and they do say, the first one is, One Piece remains, and beware the reaper at the gates. So you think it is the Nightbringer?
1: Okay, so you're right. Or
0: is it, oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: I guess I'm still not sure. What if it's Moth? Now that we've been talking about Moth being kind of creepy or whatever, maybe I just thought that in my head. But as we were talking about Moth, I was thinking about how he's actually kind of creepy and maybe he's the reaper of the gate. Because we
0: know the dead will rise. We got that part. The child will be bathed in blood, but alive. I'm guessing that's Olivia's? The emperor. No. Marcus was the emperor?
1: I mean, the new emperor, Zacharias. The oh, baby.
0: Zacharias. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, the pearl will crack. That was the city. The butcher yep. is Helena. Yep. That's bleak. The butcher will break and none will hold her. Oh, dear. The ghost will fall. Her flesh will wither. By the grain moon, the king will have his answer. The forgotten will find their master. I love prophecies. I know you don't like prophecies, but I really like prophecies. I like trying to figure them out.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, have, I always have mixed feelings about them. This book, it's not bothering me as much. I think in part because people are like fighting them and they're not always assuming that they fully know what it is like i like that there's been some misdirection you know like oh her thinking it's the ghost but it's not like she makes choices because of that that i don't know i don't like it when like it becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy where because they heard the prophecy they do something and then because they do something the prophecy Mm. becomes true like that always bothers me gotcha
0: I think that's just about it with Elias. I mean, he's now fully absorbed Moth and he's hardened himself against Helena and Leia
1: to do his job. Yeah, my biggest question with him is what it's really about Moth. My questions are really about Moth, but I think he's going to be the one who can answer them for us. And I loved at the end-ish where he had given up his humanity and he sort of had that dialogue with moth i think where he was like how come i have to give up my humanity why can't you become more human yeah and i thought that was like such an interesting idea and i hope we kind of see that played out further in book four like maybe that's the answer maybe it because i don't know it feels like that's one of the best things about him right
0: i know i totally agree so we'll see <sighs> okay let's go back to leia because she has had some interesting journeys and i think i feel like it's through leia that we meet most of our Newer characters.
1: Yep. And new places too, I guess, because we hadn't seen Marin yet until Mm -hmm. they ultimately escaped there. Yeah, she travels a lot. True.
0: But we do meet, well, Leia is told that she needs to find the beekeeper. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my one problem with this book. I feel like in every section of the book, someone was like, I can't give you the answers because I'm dying, but you need to find XYZ. And it just felt like it happened a lot. Yeah. And I got kind of annoyed with that. It was like, first you have to find the beekeeper. Then you have to find the butcher. Then you have to it find... It felt like a treasure hunt,
1: know. but it wasn't like we were actually discovering yeah. clues. It was like people not giving us more information. <laughs> I agree. I, I had that frustration at one point as well.
0: Um, but I actually really do like the character of Musa a lot. Me too. Who ends up being the beekeeper. And we learned that he is... Married to the princess of Marin, Nikla.
1: I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: But there's like something weird going on there because she clearly doesn't want him.
1: She did until the ghouls came or whatever, right? She's like haunted.
0: Yeah. She's this princess who was like constantly surrounded by ghouls. And she also is at odds with her, with the king. And so I'm, I'm very like interested in their
1: relationship Well, didn't she have a brother who was supposed to be king, and something happened to him? And then, like the ghouls came, yeah. and she's like stepped into the like. I sort of feel like some tragedy befell the family, which made her sad enough for the ghouls to come. And then the ghouls have like turned her into this. Like I feel like there's more to that story of how all these pieces are connected, but it is kind of interesting.
0: I think there is too, and it it was something like she and Musa were young and like eloped and she she wasn't supposed to Mm -hmm. be uh, queen you're right and then all of a sudden it was kind of thrust on her and then they like grew apart so maybe it is kind of more of a boring story than i was hoping for but i just
1: i think it's it's interesting no i think there's something there i think there's got to be something more interesting there and then we know musa has his own magical power thing where he can who does he talk to again rates no I forget what creature it is.
0: I think it's the raids.
1: Right. Okay. Well, he can talk to them. That's how he, like, collects all these secrets and stuff, because they, like, zip around mm-hmm. and, like, eavesdrop and, like, come back and tell him things, which I just, I love this, like, spy network idea, too. But it's interesting that he's kind of has this network of supernatural creatures and his wife yeah. is being surrounded by these negative supernatural creatures and I'm curious if that's somehow related to like if did some choice he make or does his magic have something to do with her situation or I don't know I'm just kind of I feel like yeah there's more to that story I hope
0: I hope so too and I think one of my other complaints about this book was that we did get a lot of new characters but I don't know them like we didn't get to spend a lot of time with them like we got to spend barely any time with them i'd say i don't know we had Mm -hmm. grimar the the warlock priest we had nikola we had aliba zella sylvius like we had the Jaduna. like we had so many the kehani i mean we had so many people that we met in this book but none of them had a lot of time on the page and I didn't really feel any connection with them which I thought was kind of sad and like at a certain point there were just so many characters that I was having a really hard time keeping them all straight and I don't know I was just kind of like I wish I I wish there were fewer characters so that I got to know them really well like even Taz from the last book was not in this book at all and I was kind of like
1: even Darren We didn't really get to know any better, and I was really looking (laughs) forward to that.
0: Yeah, I just feel like this book is so plot-driven.
1: It's very, yeah. I think the plot and the pacing is really good, but I would agree there are kind of sacrifices made about yeah. character development, especially of the secondary characters. I mean, I think our three main points of view are balanced well, and we've seen mm-hmm. them all change and develop to at least some extent, but yeah, yeah, it's been kind of touch and go on the other people.
0: Yeah, and I just don't know if... I, I, I don't feel like adding any of these new characters made the book better. It just made it a little bit more confusing. Yeah. That's my only complaint,
1: but... It's even hard to keep track of like the groups of people, yeah. Especially because so many start with M, which is probably just my own problem that I'm like bad at with M. Yeah, like we've got the Marins and we've got the Merchants and we've got the (laughs) Mariners or I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like maybe I'm saying the same three names over and over again.
0: Moth and Lisa. Okay, I'm (laughs) Marcus. I also feel like my least favorite perspective is still Leia, and I feel bad saying that, but. I don't know. I feel like Elias had some interesting stuff happening to him in this book with learning how to become the new soul catcher. Helena, we'll talk about her in a minute because, oh my gosh. (laughs) But I felt like Leia was just kind of like, she was the one who was constantly being jerked around. Like, by everyone. They were like, oh, I can't tell you. Go find the beekeeper. Oh, actually, you have to seek out the great library and find the augurs. Like, she was put on this wild goose chase. And then found her mom and then lost her mom. Like, I feel really bad for her.
1: I do feel bad for her, but I still like her story and I actually liked it more this book I think than the last book or I feel like watching her grow and like you know trying to save more of the scholars and like kind of be different from her mom and like come into this role of leader and as sad as it's been to figure out how to do it on her own because I feel like she's always thought she needs all these other people and not that she I think she does need other people but you know just figuring out that she like has the strength. She's the only one who went against the Nightbringer. She still has all this hope. Like, there's something about her I like. And from a plot perspective, even though she was getting jerked around a lot, she also helped us see a lot of the world. And, like, she was kind of interesting in that sense to me. Elias Mm -hmm. is, I thought, was the most boring this book, except I did like getting... He was the way that we learned about some of the magic and some of these other like the Jen and moth and stuff like that so I appreciated that aspect but Mm -hmm. I thought his story and his he barely left the forest and he like had the same problem the whole book in my mind
0: (laughs) he did and I feel like Leia is the one who's going to bring everyone together and make everyone realize that the Nightbringer is like the common enemy here
1: but is he I kind of think Ultimately, we're going to need to bond with the Nightbringer. That's why I'm thinking Moth is the enemy now.
0: Oh. Well, I guess that's true because at the end, we learned that, like, Elias actually does want the djinn to be released because they're the only ones who can control the ghosts.
1: Okay, and speaking of the end and the Nightbringer, because we skipped over this part. So, Cain was the Scholar King Mm -hmm. who trapped the djinn, and now all the other augurs have died, the gen were just released at the end, and Kane is still alive, but for some bad reason. And I am so excited. Like, I, I love know.
0: that part. Me too. And we're expected to believe that Kane, or at least one of the augurs, was the one who fell in love with Soulcatcher, right? Oh, yeah. And she gave him the secrets to defeat the djinn and so then the augurs have been like using their magic all along and that was such a great way to like tie it back into the first book because we learned in the very first book that the augurs have magic and no one knows how they got it
1: and they can't die and like they have this burden of immortality and
0: that was such a great way to like tie it all back together
1: Yep, I agree. You want to go to Helena? Can we talk about Helena now? (laughs) (laughs) Save the best for last according to you I'm sure right? (laughs)
0: love this girl so much. I love how her chapters are now titled Bloodstrike and not Helena. I thought that was very telling that she's like, I'm not Helena anymore. I am the Bloodstrike. And even with that being said, I think we do get to see a lot of humanity from Helen in this book. Mm -hmm. I think her love for her sister, Livia, made her such... A more well-rounded character like Mm -hmm. before she was in love with Elias, and like we had kind of that like oh she can love she's not just like this cold-hearted killer but it's so much i feel like it's so much more special when it's between like a family member or it's some kind of love that's not romantic Mm -hmm. and i think her family love like really shone through this book and made me like want to root for her so much more even more than I did before.
1: And I agree. And the way it played out over the three books was so nice, too, to your point. Because in book two, we weren't expecting... We thought she... Or even she thought that like what she was giving up or with that moment of being unmade or whatever. I forget how it was worded, Mm -hmm. but that it would have something to do with Elias. But it was really the death of most of her family and seeing how that's impacted her and her relationship with her sister. And then, of course, Marcus, evil Emperor Marcus, Mm -hmm. like torturing, like breaking her finger. Oh, there's some of those scenes as a sister as well was like... Like if someone were doing that to my sister, it would be way worse in some ways than someone doing it to James even. I don't know.
0: (laughs) It is weird. It's like this very like primal need to like protect your family. Yeah. And we see that with her. And I also really liked that we see her using her songs more to heal. Yep. And I felt like we got such a better description of it in this book. Like before I just felt like, she was like, I sing a song and they get healed. But in this book, it was like, you have to find that person's song and sing that particular song that's unique to that person. And I thought that was like, it made the magic so much more interesting.
1: And it was interesting to watch her relationship with the Nightbringer because we had seen them interact Mm -hmm. briefly in the previous book as Nightbringer. And then we obviously knew what he was up to from a... He needs love, given, and trust, and blah, blah, blah perspective. Mm-hmm. And so viewing their interactions from not... Him, like, him being Nightbringer was, like, a much different dynamic. And it was interesting to watch them kind of build that trust and him still be kind of a bad guy, but also kind of helpful. I don't know. It was I, like, loved watching... Her, her relationships are the most interesting. I will agree with that.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean...
1: Even with the commandant. Like, it's so complicated because she has to also play this, like, political role, right? So she could yeah. attempt to at least just murder her and now she wishes she had <laughs> and I love the political games a little bit but like you know winning over mm-hmm. the peasants and then you know embarrassing people in public and yeah like all kinds of losing the ships the politics games along with the military stuff I almost like that more than the military stuff
0: yeah the military stuff was hard to figure out because the commandant was always one step ahead of us and I was right there with Helena being like what the heck does this woman want what is she doing like like did she lose the fleet on purpose? Does she, is she upset that the Carquins are attacking? Like what? I was so confused, <laughs> and so it was kind of hard to follow. But I love that Helena is still trying to bring down the the commandant, and we basically learn like you have to find Quinn, you have to find her father, and you have to learn her weakness. That's like the thing that we still haven't gotten yet, and and we've kind of hinted at it a little bit. Like we learn that. Elias's father was actually a good man and that the commandant was in love with him and he was a plebeian who was killed like murdered by a group of masks who were of the commandant's generation like they were her peers mm-hmm. and now we learn that the commandant is like hunting down each of the masks and killing them and then like
1: adding th- a letter to her tattoo exactly
0: <laughs> yeah So, I really liked that extra piece, and I want to keep seeing more of it, because I feel like we're slowly learning a little bit more about the Commandant, and, like, I always said, there has to be a reason for why she's so evil, like, she can't just be evil for no reason, so I feel like we're getting closer and closer to that.
1: Oh, yeah. And someone, was it... Leia maybe was warned or reminded, like, you need to figure out her story if you want to defeat her. The cook said that, And yeah. I agree, we're starting to get that story, but it feels like there's even more to uncover there. And, it, yeah, it makes her so much more interesting as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Helena, I love that she was the one who had the last piece of the star, but it wasn't her ring, it was her mask.
1: Oh my goodness, I yeah. thought that
0: was, like, so fascinating because, like, Helena's mask had fused to her. She was you know, fully transformed and, like, fully accepted that position. And the only reason she gives it up is when the Nightbringer basically says, like, I need this to save your people. And I I really loved the idea that the parts of the star can only be given up through love in trust and he got around that by building on her love for the people like even though she's so brutal and she's so Mm -hmm. cruel at times like the one thing that she does have going for her is that she loves her people fiercely Like, she loves the empire
1: and we've seen that develop more and more throughout these three books as well right and I think the groundwork Mm -hmm. is laid so well across all three of these books where we get these reveals and they make so much sense but I didn't see them coming or you know we slowly have this character development Mm -hmm. again like seeing her heal the children in the hospital like that scene would have felt out of place in book one for her totally but but it made sense with the progression we've seen since then and yeah it was it's a really beautiful growth for her I think but I have a question okay so I agree it was kind of cool and dramatic that it was the mask and no one was expecting that that she had to give but then the nightbringer took it and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain did he or how did he help
0: Oh, he didn't.
1: I don't think he did. (laughs) Yeah, and that really bothered me, because I feel like if you're doing it, if it has to be given freely, then there were, like, terms to the agreement that he broke. I don't know. That bothered me. I feel
0: like it was kind of like Keenan. I think it has to be given with trust, but I don't think that trust has to be like he tricked them he tricked both of them he made them trust him even though they shouldn't have
1: yeah maybe he just made me trust him too i was waiting for him to do something good (laughs) or maybe not good but at least like technically like oh i guess that counts but not really what we meant by that like be careful what you wish for kind of thing
0: um i really loved the ends where helena and marcus have their final meeting too oh yeah because I didn't expect Marcus to die in this book, honestly. I thought he was still going to be around. But he stays back to fight, and Helena finds him, and the, the Commandant had killed him in like a very specific way where it was going to take hours for him to die, essentially. And I thought for sure, too, that he was going to ask Helena to heal him, but instead he asks her to kill him yeah because he's suffering. like suffering yeah and he's like still seeing his brother and ready to and go how did you feel though about him being like redeemed in a way
1: i don't know that he was redeemed in my mind but he is an example of a character that i like a secondary character who i felt like could have had even more going mm-hmm. on um are you talking about just like the scene at the end when elias like
0: moves them on with his brother looks into his
1: memory and yeah i mean i I was glad that he found that piece. I almost feel like that scene would have been more meaningful if Elias remembered them because that was when he was like not him, you know, not human. Right. So it was interesting for us to see, I guess, but I think that would have been like a much bigger step if Elias had helped him find that piece or like come to peace himself with it.
0: Boy, I also feel like we didn't get any of Marcus trying to really redeem himself.
1: No. And I almost wanted to see his brother more like say something or yeah like have more of a acknowledging like or
0: just see him be nice to someone. One
1: person. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I just feel like he died and got this like really nice ending with his brother and Helena was kind of like you know, I bet he started out innocent at one point too, which I'm sure is true, but we never really saw that glimpse into his character. Like, he was always just an evil guy. Yeah,
1: that's fair. He was, I guess, nice to his baby, and still, (laughs) he wasn't completely selfish. I mean, he wasn't a great emperor by any means, but I do feel like he stayed back to fight and, like, give his child a chance to survive. Not that that makes him, like, it's not really quite a redeeming act because every creature in the world protects its young i think but mm-hmm. you know it's almost kind of a small tiny glimpse that kind of counts maybe a little bit
0: i mean he's not the commandant for sure because she yeah. just doesn't care about her people at all like she sacrificed basically like all the scholars and all the citizens and all the plebeians to yeah. to get what does she want now like world
1: domination i think is what she's yeah. going for. she doesn't for. just want to be emperor she wants to be <laughs> queen of the world or king of the world or whatever uh, in charge of the human race yeah which, you know, dream big.
0: Dream, dream big, girl.
1: <laughs> so
0: where do you think this book is going to go now in, uh, in the last and final installment?
1: Well, it's really interesting to me that Helena and Leia are kind of teamed up at the very end of this yeah. book. And I'm curious how that will impact. Because in some ways, the three perspectives, I think, work really well when they're all in different places for the most part. So I'm kind of curious if they'll, even if they're allies... Divide and conquer somehow, or how how that's mm. gonna play out. But I I kind of like them being together. So I, do
0: too.
1: I mean, they're gonna ultimately face down Nightbringer and or Commandant and or some combination of the two. I think I think Commandant dies in this book at some point, but it's not gonna be in the first chapter, if I had to guess.
0: I agree, and I think
1: uh, who do you think's gonna kill her, Helena? Ooh, that's a great question.
0: Or Leia? Like, who do I want to kill her more? <laughs>
1: I kind of want Darren to come kill I think her. I want Leia randomly oh. or something. <laughs>
0: I want Leia to kill her just to get ve- some vengeance, like, for her mother and Izzy.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I don't know. As long as someone kills her, that girl needs to die.
0: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going to happen with Elias because I feel like Elias is lost and gone and, like, dead to us.
1: <laughs> so I kind of hope that that's temporary and or that we don't spend a lot of time while he's in... Like, I get... It needed to happen, maybe. But, like, I don't want to keep visiting him and just having him be controlled by Moth and, like, nothing changing. So, yeah. he then needs to, like, just give us more information on Moth, who I am predicting is the ultimate bad guy, but we'll see. And then possibly defeat him or get his humanity back or, like, somehow get back in the action of what's going on with the gen and the humans. He can't just stop caring about the humans for the rest of the series because right that would be boring (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and we need to have this showdown between because now it's like olivia's child and then the commandant like those are the two players
1: they both have a claim to the throne
0: yeah man there's a lot of stake here
1: And I don't know how the gen are going to get involved, like, with all that magic release. And, all, like, I'm so curious to see. I don't really know what they're capable of. Are they all, like, the Nightbringer? Are some of them going to... It's a whole other yeah. layer of enemy to get involved and in whatnot, so... And the
0: Augurs are probably going to come back.
1: And I hope we go back to Marin and, like, see Musa and see the king or the queen or whoever ends up being in trouble. Like, I hope the world that's expanded so much continues to be expanded.
0: Mm. I agree, yeah. It's fun seeing all the different parts of the world for sure.
1: Do you think any of our three main characters die? Oh gosh.
0: I hope not. Um no. I don't think any of them will, because I think I think I still think Leia and Elias are gonna end up together somehow. Maybe they'll both be Jinn. Uh I think I think Helena and Harper are gonna end up together, even though that last scene really broke my heart where they had a moment and then Helena was like no, I'm the blood strike. get out of here, go back to your post, or whatever, and just, like, totally pushed him away.
1: Yeah, but they already had the moment, which is, like, the hardest, the first moment's the hardest in some ways, right? That's true.
0: So maybe they'll be able to jump back on that boat.
1: (laughs) Okay, this isn't really a real prediction, but I'm just, I happen to have the next book next to me Mm. right now, and Helena is not on the cover. Do you think Mm. that's a sign of something? I hope not. It looks like, to me, just... There's two people, and I think it's Elias and Leia, but that's not a reason to predict anything, but...
0: I mean, a book without Helena is not a book I want to read. (laughs) Uh, Okay, did you do any research this week?
1: I did just a little bit. So we had that scene where when Leia's trying to take Helena's ring because she thinks that's the silver, and Cook kind of sets her up, and she ends up delivering the baby, and we... Even before that, we had where they were, like, trying to find a midwife, and all the midwives had, like, left town or been killed. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had, like, suggested making tea that would actually make the baby come too soon. There was, like, all the sabotage on the midwife thing, and I forget who it was who said it, but someone was like well why don't you just get a doctor from like the barracks and they were like oh doctors don't do that Mm -hmm. and I was like oh that's so interesting to think about because now there's a whole arm of medicine around taking care of babies and delivering babies and you know all of that Mm -hmm. and
0: and previously it was just like women's work
1: yeah it was women's work but it's also one of like the main ways that women would die back in the day and even still it's like one of the riskier things that women do even though we do it all over the world and like surviving childbirth and or being a baby who survives childbirth back in the day was like a huge thing. And then it's just interesting that it's to your point, women's work. No
0: one cared. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I did a little bit of looking at some of the history of of like midwifery Mm -hmm. and when doctors started getting involved and like how that transition happened, especially because so like home births with midwives were like the norm for a very long time. Then hospitals with doctors became the norm. And now we're kind of at this place where... Today, both options are pretty valid in, especially like a country like yeah. the U.S., where midwives are trained now, not just like, oh yeah, I saw my neighbor's kid get delivered, so I know what I'm doing or whatever. But got a
0: bunch of herbs <laughs> that I dug out of the woods. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: But you know, people <laughs> choose and it's safe and whatever to have a midwife and deliver at home again. So it's just kind of funny to like see it go back around. So and I'm pregnant, so I was maybe just interested in some of this anyways. But um, that's kind of what I looked into. So let me share some fun. Statistics with you. First of all, I thought this was interesting, but probably not shocking. An American woman in the 18th and 19th centuries had, on average, seven live births during their lifetime.
0: Jeez Louise. The
1: average? <laughs> I mean, people had big families back then.
0: <laughs> they didn't have birth control back then. Well, and that was the other thing. Reliable. They said the
1: number of, like, early terminations, that was, like, another big piece of midwifery. And we even saw that in this mm. book, too, right? Because when Leia's mom asks her she had, like, studied with the midwife... She assumes she's talking about, oh, preventing pregnant, like the stuff that you would do to prevent pregnancy or abort, or, or like, you know, she's thinking about all those things, not about actually mm-hmm. delivering a child, which is also risky, obviously. And again, people tended to, if anything, learn from like their, women would all gather when someone was giving birth. So if you were like the oldest daughter or like Ugh, lived in a neighbor you know, terrible right oh my goodness
0: just on display so people could learn from you oh, well they'd be they'd,
1: they'd be there helping and supporting you and the idea is you would then go help and support them but it wasn't like a formal training like you didn't go off to medical school right like right at most maybe you'd have an unofficial like apprenticeship with the local midwife but even mm. that was probably less common than just kind of being at enough births that you, like, as you get older, you become more involved kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and well, also it was so, it was, like, such a taboo thing that, like, I I feel like people, especially men, probably weren't encouraged to study it. Um, Totally. Or even, like, if you think, like, religious beliefs would come into play, like, I think a lot of people probably thought there was something taboo about, like, looking at a birth that went wrong and trying to figure out what happened instead of being like, no, like, we need to consecrate this soul, you know. I feel like there's something taboo about, like, trying to get in there and figure out, like, what goes wrong and why, which is where all the learning comes from.
1: Mm -hmm. So male physicians were first invited to assist American women in birthing rooms in the 1760s. And physicians at this time were also all-male and if they were called in at all before, it would only be in, like, extreme, extreme emergencies. And usually women, to your point, like, would mm-hmm. also, also didn't want them there,
0: kind of. They were like, this is our sphere. Yeah.
1: And also they, they figured, like, men couldn't relate. Like, they wanted women to be comfortable mm. and, like, women know women's bodies better than men kind of thing, I think, was sort of the assumption. Gotcha.
0: But we wouldn't train women to be able to handle yeah. I women. know. Yeah.
1: Right? <laughs> That's <not> the problem. <laughs> It's a a chicken and an egg backwards problem thing. But So Dr. William Shippen Jr. of Philadelphia in 1762 trained in midwifery in London and then became the first American male physician to establish a normal obst- obst Why can't I say this word? No one can. (laughs) OB. (laughs) A normal OB practice in the U.S. And he started trying to create like a formal- education around midwifery for men and women after that Mm. Um, but really things started to change when new medical interventions were employed so when like anesthesia and forceps became like options at hospitals there was more of a belief that you that was sort of when the shift started to happen for women to go to a hospital to give birth Um, Even though the numbers did not get significantly better. Okay, so between 1850 and the mid-1930s, the risk of a mother dying in childbirth was, like, equally high. So even though there were a lot of, like, changes and, like, people started going to hospitals and... They started using anesthesia and, like, things like that. It wasn't actually any safer. Oh, wow. But between 1937 and 1945, there was a significant decline in women contracting infection because of some antibacterial drug that was developed. And that, like, severely cut the mortality rate around that time. Oh, nice. Um, and blood transfusions became more common.
0: Wasn't it in the 1950s when, like, women were, like, essentially given, like, chloroform and, like, put under to deliver their kid, their babies? Wasn't that a thing?
1: Yes. I forget what year, but yes, that was a thing. Because that sounds absolutely insane. And it's, it's, like, again, just, like, this lack of proper training or proper testing of stuff right but women wanted it too because they didn't want to be in pain so they'd like opt into like you know options to be knocked out which is interesting because now I think the shift back to like natural childbirth a lot of women choose that like there's just all these arguments now back and forth which is interesting but yeah we definitely did stuff that we maybe shouldn't have done as we started trying to to address some of it Mm -hmm. so this is from I think these are England statistics because I couldn't find it but there was something similar in the US but uh 64% of deliveries happened in hospitals in 1954 and only a little bit more in 1960 but then between 1963 and 1972 it rose from 68 percent to 91 percent so like that was when it really kind of gained momentum to to do that and then as new technologies like ultrasounds and stuff became options at hospitals that became more common but then obviously now we've kind of hit this I don't know if middle ground is the right word, but like, again, to be a midwife, at least in places like the US, you're supposed to get certified and you do have access to certain equipment. And, you know, like there's more choices in between with like your birth plan and all of that. But, and I don't want to get, people have a lot of strong opinions about birth options. So I'm not saying anything is right or wrong. I just thought it was interesting to think about this idea of, oh yeah, like doctors aren't actually trained in midwifery. That's like a women's Thing. Right. And I know that's true, but I hadn't really thought about it that way before. And just how we've kind of even switched back to, again, not 100%, but like now midwives and home births are common again, which is just kind of kind of a cool story.
0: It's kind of interesting too to think how, you're right, like back in the day, like the people who had the education to help women were not, like didn't want anything to do with it or weren't welcome. But you can also – I can also, like, understand why women wouldn't want them there because it's, like, if you are treated as someone who isn't important enough to, like, go to school and, and study anything and then the women around you are dying and you're, like, well, it's up to me. Like, I guess someone has to, like, take care of these women. So, like, you dedicate your life to learning as much as you can about childbirth to, like, help women and be, like, the only person who can help them. And then all of a sudden men come back in and are, like, oh, no, we're interested now. And we have the training, so move along. Like, you can see how that would be a really prickly point, too. Like
1: Well, and, I mean, think about it, especially when this transition is taking place, family doctors weren't even really a thing back then, right? Like, like, going to the doctor was not the route you'd want to go unless you had no other options. <laughs> kind of. You know, I mean, yeah, like...
0: Nothing really good ever happened from seeing a doctor probably back then.
1: <laughs> there was a lot of, like, experimental stuff and a lot of, you know... Not knowing about washing things Mm -hmm. to prevent infection. And I don't know, just like there were so many more risks and it wasn't like a warm and fuzzy, like, let's talk about your options. Like, it was like, I'm the doctor. Listen to me.
0: I'm here to cut off your leg.
1: Yeah. This doesn't look good. We're going to cut it off. You may not heal from that and then we'll cut off your other one or what. I don't know. I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but it wasn't like they just (laughs) didn't touch the baby thing and they were like great and otherwise like they are today either. It was. Yeah. Anyways, that was my research.
0: Very interesting. I'm glad that you were able to research that without feeling too uncomfortable. <laughs> I did not
1: I could have dove in more, obviously, and chose yeah. not to. And I focused more on the history, so I didn't focus on like how things work today as much. But I, I it's still an interesting story for sure.
0: For sure. I actually was really fascinated with that. I because I studied at the University of Bologna in Italy and there's a huge obstetrics museum like basically dedicated to all of the advances that happened in that field at that time like in um oh gosh i don't remember what it was but it was like they were basically way before their time and what they did was they uh, studied births that went wrong um that had you know poor outcomes and instead of just kind of like covering it up and not talking about it they actually made these molds these cast molds out of uterus and the babies and it's it's really amazing there's this whole museum that's just cast molds of various birth outcomes and it's really it's tragic and it's you know very intense wow yeah they were like really dedicated to like trying to prevent women and child mortality and and they went totally against like all the teachings of the catholic church like the catholic church was not super pleased that they did that but But at least they're
1: trying to get information it was like one of the
0: hearts of obstetrics in europe which i thought was really fascinating and it was really cute i when i was there one day there was a man with his little son looking at the exhibit and the son was like, "That's gross." And the dad like knelt down. he was like, "This isn't gross. This is very important." And I was like, "Oh, you're such such a good dad." <laughs> it was just really sweet. Yeah Love it. <laughs> um, OK, I researched libraries. because we have that great scene in the book where leia has to travel to the great library
1: if i could go somewhere in this world it would be the library pre-fire for sure yes
0: exactly (laughs) so of course like as soon as i heard about a library a huge library catching fire i immediately thought of the library of alexandria Mm -hmm. so i did a little bit of research on that and then just some fun libraries around the world
1: can we, when COVID stops being a thing and we're allowed to plan something, can we do a worldwide tour of the best libraries? Oh, my God. Just have that be like our friendcation of, of our lifetime.
0: I love that idea.
1: Yes. <laughs> okay, tell, tell me more.
0: Okay, so the uh, li- the Great Library of Alexandria was part of a larger institution that was called the Musion, which was dedicated to the Muses. And it was, they say it was probably... P- Proposed during the reign of Ptolemy the First, who probably established plans for the library, but it was built during the reign of his son, um, Ptolemy the Second, Philadelphus, and it it was home to like a many many papyrus scrolls because the the king at that time was known for procuring texts, and. They said that the estimates range that there were anywhere between forty thousand to four hundred thousand scrolls at its height. Yeah, and that quickly made Alexandria become a a capital, a center of knowledge and learning. Um, And there were uh, many, many important scholars who worked there during the third and second centuries BC. So there's this widespread belief that the library of Alexandria was burned and and like completely destroyed during the reign of Julius Caesar. But that's not actually
1: the case. Oh, I totally thought that's what happened. <laughs> yeah,
0: me too. I mean, there's definitely different versions. So basically, it started declining over the course of many centuries. The decline began with the reign of Ptolemy um, VIII, where they began purging intellectuals from Alexandria, and that was in 145 BC. So then the head librarian resigned. He exiled himself to Cyprus. A lot of other scholars fled, and the library itself was accidentally burned by Julius Caesar during the Civil War in 48 BC.
1: Like he dropped a torch or what?
0: <laughs> sort of. So... Julius Caesar was besieged at Alexandria, and his soldiers set fire to some of the Egyptian ships that were docked in the port while they were trying mm. to clear, clear the way and to block the fleet that was belonging to Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemy the 14th. So he was basically trying to block a fleet.
1: He was trying to burn something else.
0: He was trying to burn something else, yeah. He's, he, like, set fire to, sh- to ships. And then the fire spread. It spread to other parts of the cities, nearest to the docks. And it did cause a lot of devastation. But they're not sure how much of the library was burned. So some people say that 40,000 scrolls were destroyed from the fire. It's a lot. It's totally a lot. But they also said that the fire... May have not even destroyed the library itself, but only destroyed a warehouse that was located near the docks that housed a lot of the library's scrolls. So the library was not completely destroyed. There were like definitely some works that were destroyed, but it's unclear whether or not, or how much it spread to the actual library itself. Um, and it was it was rebuilt after that fire, and it definitely like was still functional after that fire, and it just slowly declined over the years. Okay. And then, eventually, the Bibliotheca Alexandria was built and opened in 2002, and it opened as an homage to the original uh, library. So, although nothing remains of the original library, the, the new library was kind of built in honor of it. And I don't really know how... Like, I know the li- they said the library declined over time, but I'm not really sure what happened to the actual building itself. Okay. Then just some fun libraries around the world. So... Yes.
1: For a road trip.
0: Well, first you can come to Chicago and visit me and we can visit the Mansueto Library in Chicago. Have you been? Have you been there? No. No, I haven't. So it's part of the University of Chicago and it has a beautiful reading room and then underground there are 3.5 million books that are stored and they are tended to by robotic cranes wow
1: which sounds so cool wait can i totally interrupt you for something that's only tangentially related which is <laughs> yeah. i know that every time we say goodbye you remind people to get their library card and I don't know if I told you, but I had not gotten mine in Phoenix, and I just got it at the beginning of the year. Did you really? Yeah. So I I am now renting <gasps> audiobooks from the library. Oh, my gosh. I'm so proud
0: of you. <laughs> the other one that I thought was really interesting. So in Taiwan, the Taipei Public Library was the first library in Taiwan to receive a diamond rating for eco-conscious buildings. So it was built Ooh. from wood that was harvested from sustainably managed forests it uses a type of cell to generate power photovoltaic cells it uses layers of soil on the roof to insulate and it also uses collected rainwater to flush the toilets
1: Does it matter that it's full of books that have been published in possibly unsustainable ways that are? (laughs) I guess they're doing their best. No, that's really, really cool.
0: Um, The oldest continually operated library in the world is St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt. It was built by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I sometime around 564 AD, and it currently holds over 3,000 texts and approximately 8,000 printed books including first editions of homer and
1: plato which is crazy that is crazy i didn't even know those existed anywhere that's what it says
0: in iwaki city japan there is a library that is devoted entirely to picture books which is so cute they made it for children essentially because they didn't like how like libraries are so quiet and you have to like you know, tiptoe around and mind your p's and q's. That's true. So yeah. they made a library essentially for children that would give children a, a free space to to look at picture books, and it's really that's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and then the Boston Public Library is the second largest library in the United States. It was the first public, free to all library, uh, and the first library that lended out books to its patrons. So hmm. that would be the first library that you could get a library
1: card from i guess <laughs> love it that's really really cool i'm excited i really want this trip to happen now
0: i know oh my god that would be amazing okay should we talk about the last book in the series an ember in the ashes series yeah i don't think this is going to relate to a character either so it's called a sky before the storm as
1: long as they say as long as it's clear what they're talking about i'll, <laughs> I'll agree
0: okay do you want me to read a little bit about a sky before the storm yes please Who will survive the storm? The sky. Just (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) The torch? Remember? The reaper. The gates. Uh, (laughs) Okay, the long-imprisoned djinn are on the attack, wreaking bloody havoc in villages and cities alike. But for the Nightbringer, vengeance on his human foes is just the beginning. What? What else is there? (laughs) At his side, Commandant Karis Vittoria declares herself empress and calls for the heads of any and all who defy her rule. At the top of the list, the bloodstrike and her remaining family. Duh. Leia of Sarah, now allied with the bloodstrike, struggles to recover from the loss of the two people most important to her. Determined to stop the approaching apocalypse, she throws herself into the destruction of the Nightbringer. In the process, she awakens an ancient power that could lead to her victory or to an unimaginable
1: doom. No in-between. And, in between. Deep-,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and in deep in the waiting place, the Soul Catcher seeks only to forget the life and love he left behind. Yet doing so means ignoring the trail of murder left by the Nightbringer and his djinn. To uphold his oath and protect the human world from the supernatural, the Soul Catcher must look beyond the borders of his own land, he must take on a mission that could save or destroy all that he knows again not a lot of middle middle ground there
1: so it does make it sound though like the djinn and the nightbringer are all bad i mean who knows what will actually happen in the book but i was hoping for a different villain and more nuanced stuff so we'll see
0: Oh boy, there's a lot going on here. I think we should just start reading now. <laughs>
1: we'll need the whole two weeks to, to get through it.
0: We will. Um, okay, whose turn is it for a joke?
1: I honestly can never remember. I think it might be mine, though.
0: It's yours. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, it's
1: yours. Okay, so we had a lot of ghosts in this. Third book. So I looked up a bunch of ghost jokes and I am going to tell you one and then I'm gonna let you pick a number between one and one hundred and we'll do a second one. Oh I can't wait. I found over a hundred ghost jokes, so. Oh my goodness. Okay. Where do ghosts buy their food? The ghostry oh. store. Yes. <laughs> oh man. Wait, I get to ask another one then. No, you can pick a number. Three. Wait, that was
0: three. Oh seven.
1: <laughs> Okay, what's a little ghost's favorite game?
0: Tic Tac Boo. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Hide and Shriek.
0: Ah, oh, I could have
1: okay, got. And and one more because you got my first one. What's the ghost's favorite thing about Thanksgiving dinner?
0: I, I don't know why that the stuffing comes to mind. That doesn't have anything to do with ghosts.
1: <laughs> the grave. Oh. Anyways, um, if you guys have a really cool library by you or have been on a library adventure and want to point out some things we should include in. 10 years and we're allowed to do that again you should email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com
0: we're also on instagram at mnktalkya
1: and facebook yeah
0: and, and facebook <laughs> we're
1: not on the tweet the twitter though we don't we don't do the twitter and we never will um <laughs> it's it's Twitter's. it's still a thing right oh it's out there should we start doing like um what's the newest thing tiktok,
0: TikTok? or uh, oh, what tiktok videos tiktok's I mean? not
1: even the newest anymore
0: <laughs> i can't i'm a millennial so i don't know i don't know
1: either. <laughs> anyways facebook instagram and email that's where you
0: can find us <laughs> that's
1: it bye bookworms
0: go get a library card m and k talk ya is produced and edited by marissa snyder and katie bradford original music composition by timothy milkey logo designed by marissa snyder For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelphy, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.